give it up for worship. That was incredible. How is everyone? Wow, excited for break? No, I am. <laughs> okay, so like Phoebe said, we are talking about women and Advent. So we're talking about the women in Jesus's genealogy. Um, we're in this series because we're heading towards Christmas. And this is what we're looking at for the next five weeks. I'm so excited to kick this off today. We are talking about a woman named Tamar. So today we're going to be in Genesis 38, 6 through 26. If we could have someone pass out Bibles. This story is... The story why we can't say the Bible is just a book full of inspirational characters. <laughs> um, this is a passage that I like to call an R-rated passage. Um, it is probably not something you would learn in Sunday school. There's a lot to this. There's a lot of Old Testament context. There's a lot of cultural things that we're going to go through today. And um, this passage can bring up a lot of emotions. So I want to preface that. This is a really adult um, passage that we're talking about today. And so I also want to preface that this passage is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. These are not people that are great examples <laughs> in the story. I would say people who are great examples in the Bible are people like Daniel. Um, these are not people like Daniel. Um, but I also want to preface, as I read, I'm going to pause and I'm going to explain what's happening because there's a lot going on in just this chapter. Um, so for a timeline picture, if you guys know the Old Testament, if you don't, that's okay. Uh, it's been 130 years since Sarah, who is the wife of Abraham, passed away. Um, Isaac is grown up. He's fathered Jacob and Esau, and Jacob has fathered his 12 sons. Um, Jacob, one of his sons was Joseph. Does anyone know um, the story of like, I know it as Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat if you're a theater kid. If you're not, <laughs> it's the coat of many colors. If anyone, does anyone know the story of Joseph? Just curious. Okay, cool. Brody knows it. That's great. Um, <laughs> okay, so in Genesis, throughout this, we are going through the story of Joseph, and then suddenly in chapter 38, it stops, and it talks about Joseph's brother, Judah. Um, Judah is one of the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, um, which is very important. And if you don't know the story of Joseph, I didn't see a lot of hands, it's in Genesis 37 through 50, if you want to read it. Um, so here we are, Genesis 38, it seems to take a detour. Up to this point, we've been hearing a lot about the story of Joseph, and then suddenly there's this chapter, and it's a short story, but this is an incredibly significant story. And this is a story about how God redeems disobedience, sin, and shame. Um, for the first five verses, I'm just going to explain them, and then we'll hop into verse six. Um, basically, in this culture, people were told not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Canaan is enemy territory for Hebrews. They're not supposed to talk to them, interact with them, but Judah uh, made it very clear through his actions that he doesn't care about God's law, and so what he does is he marries a Canaanite woman, and because of this marriage, she has three sons from him. And the three sons are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Those are the three sons. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for his... Oh, I'm reading 6 through 9. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. 
Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up her offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground as to not give offspring to his brother. So basically, we find out very quickly that Ur is not a good man. He barely gets mentioned in scripture. This is the firstborn brother that Tamar was to marry. He was so wicked that God eliminated him completely. And in this context, there is a law. It's called the Leverage Marriage Law. If you want to learn more about the shame on our culture that comes from the Old Testament, comes from this time. It talks about this law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Um, and this law is basically if a man dies and he's married and his wife and him had no children, she was to marry the next brother. So his younger brother, Onan, Tamar was to marry. And Onan and this and Tamar were to have a son so that they could produce the missing heir that would assume the vacant spot in the family tree. And this law was so that the family tree would continue and that lineage would follow on forever. Um, and the offspring would get the inheritance of the dead man. So what happens here is Tamar and Onan were to have a son so that he could fill the spot for Ur because Ur was not able to have a son because he died before he could. But Onan is wicked, and what he does is he uses Tamar for his own pleasure, and he doesn't want her to have a son because he wants to keep the inheritance for himself. So what he does is wicked, and God sees this as wicked. And the big thing that we should take from these verses that I just read is that Tamar should have been taken care of by Onan, but Onan refuses to honor this, and he doesn't follow through with his duty. And the whole purpose of them being together was so that Tamar could get pregnant. Verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. I want to spend some time in this verse because, yes, what Onan did was so wicked that God did not have it. He did not tolerate it. And so now Ur and Onan, those two brothers, are dead. For Tamar, this is really bad. It means both of those husbands are gone. And during this time, sons gave women value. So if Tamar doesn't have a son, she'll be erased from history completely. And to die without a descendant is horrible, and you are gone from everything, and all the blame and the shame, it would fall on Tamar. So this is a really big deal, because now there's one son left, and through the rest of the story, people are not making good decisions. <laughs> this is a tragic story. Um, they are not the most holy of people, but you'll see that God isn't striking them down like Ur and Onan, and... It's, it was tough for me to reconcile when I read this verse um, because we know God as a God who's full of grace and he's full of mercy. And this just didn't sound like God to me. Like, oh, <laughs> that's not the God I know. But if you look more into this, holiness by R.C. Sproul says, God is gracious is not infinite. God is infinite and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God but God's grace is not infinite. God sets his limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. I wonder how many times God warned Judah's sons. Psalms 37, 27 through 39 says, Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. 
The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Let's go to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. That's the last son. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So basically the reality is that Judah is afraid. He's afraid that his last son is going to die. He thinks that Tamar's cursed because every time she marries one of his sons, they die. And so I think, in my opinion, I think Judah knew that God's hand was involved in this. And he was afraid. He wanted his son to be alive. And I'm sure he knew that the last son was wicked because it's his son. And so what he does is he has Tamar go back to her father's house. And he tells her, when Sheila's grown, I will give him to you. But this was never true. He was never going to give Sheila to her. Now let's look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah's wife is now dead. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adalmite. Okay, so in the course of time in the Bible means a very very long time. Long enough for Tamar to know that Judah was never going to give Sheila to her. At this point, Sheila is full grown, and Tamar has been in her widow's clothing for all this time, which during that time, being a widow was the socially and economically the most vulnerable you could possibly be in society. So Tamar sees this. She knows that Sheila is never going to redeem her. Verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, a veil, a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and he had not been given to her in marriage. Um, so basically what happens here is Tamar was still wearing her widow's garments, which says a lot about her actually. It says that she honors the law, and though she married into a family of men that don't honor the law, she was going to honor herself. And she knows that she's owed justice. So what she does in this verse, was it 14? Yeah. What she does in this verse is she takes off her widow's garments and she covers herself in a veil. What she's doing is she's dressing like a prostitute. Because during this time, what they would do is prostitutes would cover their faces with veils, and then they would sit at the entrance of the city gates. So she knows that Judah is going to be walking by. So she dresses up as a prostitute, and she goes to the city gates, and she waits. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside, and he said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she says, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. So there's a lot in this passage right here that needs some context. Um, basically, when she... When she says, give me your pledge, she's asking for his ID, basically. She asked for his signet, his cord, and his staff. His signet is basically, it's a seal that attests documents. So today, this is something that we use every day. Does anyone have a driver's license? Yeah. So it's like that. She's asking for his, his driver's license. And so she takes that, and he knows that... He needs that back because it's his ID, so she's going to get that goat from the flock. So that's what happens here. It's like a trade-off. 
Um, it's unique to him. It's like his wallet. Um, and also you see in this verse, I think this also says a lot about who Judah is because it takes zero words for Tamar to seduce him. All she does is sit there and he walks right up to her. And Tim Keller asked the question, how would Tamar know Judah would fall for this? She knew that because she knew him, she knew that this is the way that he was. Judah was living his own life. Judah did whatever he wanted, however he wanted. And so now she's pregnant, and it's her father-in-law. Um, verse 19. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil that she put on the garments of her widowhood. Um, she's not leaving the scene rejoicing. She is a widow, and it defines her. She's been forced into marriage with wicked men, She's been devastated, she's been used, she's been abused, and she's been abandoned, and she just had to prostitute herself with her father-in-law. And there are thousands, potentially millions of people on this planet, and God sees this one vile injustice against this one girl in someone's private tent somewhere in Canaan. And as readers of the Bible, we're not shocked that God intervenes in the story. We're expectant for God to get involved. But for Tamar, this must have been significant because she's a Canaanite. She's a foreigner to Israel. She doesn't worship God. And in this scene, she doesn't act in desire. She acts in deceit. She has an end goal, which what she does is wrong, but she has a mission in mind, and she's seeking justice. And is it the best way? No. But I know that God uses it, and I know that God can use our crazy messes and our disasters and somehow turn them for good. Verse 20 through 24. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adalmite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah, and he said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see... I set this young goat, and you did not find her. I'm going to see if I'm going to keep going. Well, yeah. <laughs> We're going to keep going. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Immoral basically means that she's acting sinful and that she did something that was, like, against the law. And so she's pregnant. She's pregnant with Judah's son, and so, but Judah doesn't know that. So she's being shamed. She's being called immoral. And Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. Um, this response is so much more brutal than the text even communicates. To be burned is reserved for the most heinous crimes. And he, it's crazy because he's, he's not outraged by his own sin. He committed the same sin, but he's outraged by hers. Let's go to verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man of whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. So what happens here is, it's actually interesting. Um, <laughs> there's something about this when she says, please identify these. That word is hakarna, um, and it's the same words that Judah and his brothers said to their father Jacob when they held Joseph's bloody coat in their hands. 
can you identify these? And if you don't know the story of Joseph, they basically tricked Joseph and sold him into slavery. And so I wonder if those words haunt Judah. Because when he said that, can you identify this? He knew fully well what they were doing. They were deceiving their father. And now here Judah stands, hearing the same words, and maybe those words just echo in his head. Verse 26, then Judah identified them, and he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So Judah is busted. Tamar's motives are revealed, and Judah's sins are exposed. Um, He says the words, she is more righteous than I am, which I think had to be a huge wake-up call for Judah, because here's a Canaanite woman who just exposed him, and he is saying that she is more righteous than the grandson of Abraham. God redeems disobedience. This is a crazy story, and I think that the story can reveal two lies um, that you and I tend to believe. The first lie is that because of our disobedience, we are not good enough for God. Um, There's a lot to this. Have you ever felt like you've been so disobedient that it's kept you from being in relationship with God? I think this story is just one terrible thing after another. It's two people who disobey God, especially Judah. Um, But still, God intervenes in their lives. Um, He still has grace for them. And it just makes me ask the question, have you ever felt like you were too far gone? Because here's a passage where I would look at two people and think, wow, (laughs) this is a mess. This passage, this chapter is just full of terrible decisions. And yeah, it is a mess. But sometimes we feel like that too. Um, I think it's not strange to think, oh my gosh, I've committed too many sins. I'm too far gone. Um, but God actually wants to meet you there. Um, God has mercy on you. That mercy is through Christ. And because he is just, his wrath for our sin was poured out on Christ. And he will not bring us to trial for our own sin because it's been paid for. And we can rest in that. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. No, we're called to a different standard as Christians. But God is constantly pursuing you no matter what you're doing, which it says that in Isaiah 49. We can rest in that. And think about Judah and Tamar. If this is true for them, it's true for you. God redeems sin. The second lie is that God can't use us because we are too sinful. God actually understands your past. He's been with you your entire life. He knows all the things, all, all the sins that you committed, all the shame that you hold on to. He knows that. And it actually doesn't keep you from being in relationship with him. But I think that's a common lie that... I've, I've seen a lot in your guys' generation. I worked at a camp this summer, and we would get 1,000 students a week. And the most recurring thing that I would see is a student would be so close to giving their life to the Lord. Like, theologically, they would understand that they were saved, but because of their sin and their shame and all of those things that they were holding on to themselves, they couldn't do it. They couldn't give it over to them. They couldn't forgive themselves. Um, Don't let sin keep you from being in relationship with God. Your sin outweighs the cross. There is not a sin that is too big for the cross. And God doesn't want you on the bench, even though you may feel like, oh, there's people that are holier than I, there's people that are better than I, or could say this 
better than I could say this, but he actually wants you to be a part of this. He wants you to be a part of his family, and he wants you to be actively in it. He's not interested in the things that you have done. He's interested in the things that you will do for him. And if God can use Judah and Tamar and let them be a part of this story, part of this lineage, which is why we're talking about them today, he can use you. He wants you to be a part of this. Um, God redeems shame. I think the question I asked when I first read this is, why are they in the lineage of Jesus? Um, I always thought that Joseph was in the lineage because here we have the golden child, and then you have the child that sold the golden child into slavery, and that child is in the lineage, and that's kind of crazy. Um, and then we have Tamar, who is a foreigner to Israel. She's perceived as this cursed woman. She's perceived as immoral. Um, and her shame is put on display. Uh, and it just, I wonder, what is the shame that has put you on display? I think a lot of the time at HSM, we talk about the shame that only we know, the shame behind closed doors. But what's the shame that has been named over you? What is something that has publicly shamed you? And for those who haven't been caught in their shame, what is it like living in the fear of waiting for that moment? And for those who have, it could be anything. I'm sure there's something that comes to mind. But what is the shame that has been named over you? Here's a woman who's been publicly shamed over and over again. And she's actually a shadow of who Jesus is going to be. And I know that's, that's a crazy sentence, but here's someone who is publicly shamed, and Jesus was publicly shamed on the cross. Someone who's all-powerful, he could have gone down, he could have gone off the cross, but he didn't, because he took on the sin of the world for you. And this is just such a crazy story, and in this story, justice, unanes, <laughs> justice reigns in a unique way. Despite the sin and the shame and the disobedience, God redeems this. And he lets it be a part of his story. And that's for you too. And I think that it's actually incredible. Um, let's turn to Matthew 1. I'm going to read something really quick. Hmm. Chapter 1, Book of Genealogy of Jesus Christ. As you read... Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. There's her name. Someone who is publicly shamed over and over again is in the lineage of Jesus. And you know what I think that says about Jesus? I think it says... I think that he wanted that to be a piece of his story because he knows that we hold on to those things too. And he wants us to be a part of his story. And as much as David and Abraham are shadows of who Jesus is, so is Tamar. And we get to look at her and we get to be expectant of who the Messiah is. But he has the answer to all of those things. He has the answer to your shame. He has the answer to your sin. He has the answer to your disobedience and he redeems it on the cross. That's the difference there. And redemption gets to be a part of the lineage of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Um, let's stand, actually, because we're going to worship after this. So, worship team, if you want to come up. Dear Lord, I just thank you for these students, and I thank you for 
the opportunity to teach such a heavy passage, God. Um, you're someone that we don't talk about that often that is significant to your story. And um, Lord, I just, I look at these students and I know that they're holding on to these things. They're holding on to their sin. They're holding on to their shame. And God, I just pray that they know that you are more than that and that you can free them from that, that there's nothing that can keep them from you that's too heavy for you, God. Um, and Lord, I, I just pray that this is a safe place where they can share that with you or with their leaders because um, that's a lot. And so, Lord, I just thank you for them and I thank you for the story of Tamar and we're excited to keep learning about these women and this lineage. Thank you, God. In your name I pray. Amen. <laughs>